for listening to our podcast, recorded live at Gateway Church Ashford. You can find out more about us on our website, gatewaychurchashford.co.uk. And uh, we were out in Canterbury yesterday, Pam and I were out in Canterbury, and just the colours, just, just the beauty of it. I mean, God is a, an, a, an amazing artist, isn't he? And I do trust that you, you take opportunity to wonder when you see creation like that and just, just worship, because this is our God. He put all of this into creation, and depending on the season, it comes out, and what a glorious display it is. It's just, just wonderful, wonderful, wonderful. So thank God for the seasons, because um, we live in an urban culture, we tend to forget that, but it's good to remember the seasons. God gives us seasons, and uh, they're part and parcel of our lives. We continue this morning with our theme on the gospel, uh, the good news, and uh, how the gospel changes everything. And so we, we, we looked at the gospel first week, then Barney uh, looked at it again on the second week, and how, what the gospel kind of does for us. And this morning we're looking at the gospel and my identity. Next week we'll be looking at the gospel and our identity. And, uh, and, and then later about how the gospel in, indeed does good. So if you've got a Bible and you'd like to turn to it, we'll come to this a little bit later. But Romans chapter 8 is where I'm going to be digging this morning. Because really most of what I want to say is just right in that chapter. And it's interesting because it's a chapter that most Christians aspire to and never actually get to. There are some particular theological backgrounds that believe that Romans 7 is the normal experience of your Christian life. The good that I would, I do not. And the bad, I don't want to do. That I keep on doing. Oh, what a wretched man I am who will deliver me from this body of death. I've lived there. I know what that's like. It's a horrible place to be. And it's not the right place to be. I'll slow down a little bit. (laughs) Um, But Romans 7 is not the normal Christian life. Romans chapter 8 is. And so we're going to be touching on that. But let's just remind ourselves of our vision this morning. And uh, our vision as a church. Let's read this together, shall we? Our vision is to grow a family of believers who are passionate about loving God and his presence. That are secure in their identity as his sons and daughters. And filled with the Holy Spirit each one partnering with Jesus daily in extending his kingdom. And you know, we can't do that without knowing the gospel. Because that is the gospel right there. Um, yes, we, we can expand on it, but that is the essence of the gospel, the gospel about a passion uh, for loving God and his presence. God is not some abstract thing that's right out there in some some other reality, he is a God who is present to us, who is very real to us. It's about being secure in the identity that he gives us as his children, as his sons and daughters. It's about being filled with the Holy Spirit, because Jesus says, I'm not going to leave you on your own, I'm going to send one just like myself to be with you, who will remain with you even to the end of the age. And it's about partnering with Jesus uh, daily to extend his kingdom, because Jesus said, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. And uh, so we, we need to know the gospel. We need to know it personally. We need to know that we are saved, that we are one of his children. We need to know that God is our Father and the Holy Spirit fills us. We need to know these truths so that we can pass them on uh, effectively to, to other people. And the gospel is a, a staggering thing, and we've just heard a little bit there as we've gone through this morning how 
the gospel impacts our lives and sing great songs there about the gospel and its power and testimony about the gospel and its power to impact our lives. And the gospel is not just simply a saving experience, it is a transforming experience. It is a a means whereby we are changed from one degree of glory to another. That should be the process of our lives, that we are being changed day by day, that we're being transformed into the likeness of Jesus, because Paul said we are predestined to be like Jesus. That's God's intention, the Father's intention, that we should be like his Son, Jesus Christ. And there are seven aspects or areas of our lives which the gospel, we can expect the gospel to impact. Now, the gospel doesn't impact all of them all at once. We find as we go on with God, the gospel impacting our lives in different ways and transforming us. And just let me to run through those very quickly. The first one is our spirit, our relationship to and awareness of God. The second one is our emotions. The healthy process of expressing and reflecting and understanding hurts and wounds and bondages that stunt our emotional freedom. Uh, The third one is our relationships. The gospel will impact not only our lives, but uh, of necessity our relationships as well, our engagement with others. It will impact our minds. It impacts our intellect. So Paul says that we are to be renewed in our minds. Be renewed in our minds. And then it will impact our sphere of employment, our vocation, that which we are involved in, that which we are called to, the sphere. It may be motherhood, it may be fatherhood, it may be out there serving voluntarily in the community in some way, it may be the job that you do. Whatever it is, it will impact the way we do that. And one of the things that we know in our own country, it was out of the the, the, the revivals that took place that we, we developed what was known as the Protestant work ethic, which transformed our country as people saw that work was good and a gift of God. And so people worked as unto the Lord. So the sphere of employment. It also impacts our, our physical health and well-being. It impacts our bodies. And so that's another aspect to take into account too. And then thirdly, or lastly rather, it is the stewardship of all the resources that God has given to us. God has resourced it, put a tremendous amount of resources in each one of our lives. And it's how we steward those things in the, in the grace of God. You know, we, we, can, we can bury them somewhere or we can make full use of them to the glory and the praise of his name. So those seven aspects we should be expecting the gospel to impact and transform us. Our spirit, emotions, relationships, intellect, sphere of employment, physical health and well-being and the stewardship of resources. And there's a question that we can ask about why it's that sometimes we we allow the gospel to impact one part and not another because that gospel is intended to impact our whole humanity. And and when it does, there is an amazing synergy, an amazing interaction and energy that takes place, which is the opposite of antagonism. Because the other will be an an antagonizing thing going on within us, within our life with God. But as, as those areas are gradually change, we will find that there is a a growing energy and and synergy that takes place, producing a a, a wholesome and greater effect in our lives and through them as the gospel impacts us. So to be transformed by the good news should see transformation and advancement in each of those areas. I wonder if I, as I've just listed them, whether you've clocked in your mind, yeah, I, I can see God working on me in that area. 
but I'm actually resistant to him working on me in that area. See, God takes us on as a whole project. It's not just about saving you and getting you to heaven as good and glorious and great and wonderful as that is. He's actually in the process of restoring the masterpiece. He's not about to put you through some shredder. (laughs) He's not going to do a Banksy on you. You know, create something and then put it through some shredder. Although I understand now the value of that has increased. Goodness knows how much. A strange world, isn't it? The art world. Um, but he's not going to do that on you. God is in the business of... Have you ever seen those programs where they restore the originals? And they go to immense effort and delicacy in just cleaning away the different layers of a, 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 a painting that has been spoiled over the years as, as it's gathered dust and grime in different ways and it's cleaned away. And then they, they suddenly unveil it and you say, wow, you see the original colours. That's what God does in our lives. Yeah. So it's the enemy who wants you to resist that because if he can cause you to resist that, there will be a little bit of grime grime still on there. And it will in some way uh, mar the image of God, the image of Christ coming through you. Those seven areas. Do you know God is at work on all of them? So image, as we've mentioned, it is everything. It is. It literally is. Uh, Abraham Herschel said this, what determines one's being is the image one adopts. And you see it in the world in which we live where youngsters are craving the image and they're going after, you know, that the celebrity image. That's who I want to be. I want to be a famous footballer. I want to be a pop star. I want to do this and I want to do that. And of course, there's only relatively few people who can be top football players or pop stars and so on. And so a lot of people are going to be disillusioned. And we're putting our emphasis in the wrong place. But image does affect the way our lives develop. We were made in the image of God to image God to others. Yeah. Each one of us made in the image of God. But as we know the the gospel story, we know that that image has become marred. We know that outside of Christ, the the Bible says that we're a stranger, that we're cut off, that we're lost, that, that we're a rebel, that we are without hope. And we've only got to look around, look at the daily news, read our newspapers and and discover the mess that we are making of life without God. The brokenness of the individual life, the brokenness of relationships, the the brokenness and despair that we find in society. If you'd like to turn with me to Romans chapter 8, it will come up on the screen as well. I'm not sure how well you'll be able to see it. Um, But we're going to read these uh, verses from 1 to 17. I've I've chosen to read this from the NIV, and I'll explain why. I normally use the New Living Translation because I think it's a very accessible Bible for every age group. It's an accessible Bible for for non-Christians, but I don't like it when it comes to Romans 8. And the reason is because it uses, it translates this word flesh that you see in here as sinful nature. That does all sorts of wrong things to understanding our lives and what God has done in his grace. And maybe... I can explain a bit more later on. So here we are. Can you, can you see that? You can. Okay, let's stand then and let's read the word of God together. Okay. Therefore, 
There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do, because it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in the flesh, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Those who live according to the flesh have their minds set on what the flesh desires, but those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. The mind governed by the flesh is death, but the mind governed by the Spirit is life and peace. The mind governed by the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those who are in the realm of the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the realm of the flesh, but are in the realm of the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God lives in you. And if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, they do not belong to Christ. But if Christ is in you, then even though your body is subject to death because of sin, the Spirit gives life because of righteousness. And if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of his Spirit who lives in you. Therefore, brothers and sisters, we have an obligation, but it is not to the flesh to live according to it. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. For those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. The Spirit you receive does not make you slaves, so that you live in fear again. Rather, the Spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. And the Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now if we are children, then we are heirs. Heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. Wow. Can I recommend to you that you read that over and over this week? Can I recommend to you that you not only read it, but you, you think about it, you ponder it, And just let it sink into your heart what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. So the gospel of the good news is is about salvation and restoration. It's about renewal. Restoring that, that marred image in our lives to all that it was meant to be. Much like that painting or much like a building that needs restoring to its former glory. So if you've got your Bible there and you want to follow me as I go through this, the first thing that you'll notice there is, number one, it says we are no longer condemned. This is important to understand this, 
to understand this as children of God. Because if we don't get over this hurdle at the beginning, we will not feel like children. We will always feel like slaves. And we'll always be endeavoring to earn something or we'll always be cowering in fear of God. And so Paul, right here in his summary, he says, Therefore, and a therefore is there because something ran before it. And he's summarizing the gospel. He's summarizing that which he's unpacked in the previous seven chapters. And, and if we had time to go into all of that, I mean, it's just fantastic uh, to be able to think about that. But in essence, what he's saying is as a result of what God has done for you in Jesus Christ, you are no longer under judgment. And that should get a big hallelujah, really. Because if you knew about how bad you were and you knew what Christ had done, I mean, it's just so liberating. It's so, so freeing. There should be that shout of joy. All the dirt has been cleaned away. There is no more judgment. And, and, and you know, very often in our Christian lives, guilt can be there. The guilt that God will judge me again. The guilt that somehow when I get to eternity, I will find it's not all as I thought it was. And I've said before how I've counseled with people in their dying days and and they have said to me, Richard, I don't know whether I've done enough. They have lived in fear of God. They've carried guilt with them even to that moment. But what a thrill at that moment to just share again with them Jesus and what he's done. It's not about what you've done. It's about what he has done. And has he done enough? My, yes, he has. He has done everything. He came into this world. He took our sin to himself as the spotless Lamb of God. He paid the price for it. He bore God's wrath. And he went down into death. He went down into the grave. And he rose again. Hallelujah. And the fact that he is alive today says that the job was done. There is nothing that has been omitted. There is nothing that has been forgotten. So guilt is not a good thing for forming Christian identity. And I want to say, if there's anybody here this morning and you are suffering in that way, you really need to understand this. Because guilt is a hard taskmaster. And the enemy will use it day in, day out. He'll come to you in the night hours and he will lay it on you thick. You have to go back to the word of God. You have to go back to the verdict of scripture where it says very clearly in what Paul unpacks in those chapters in Romans, it is done. Or as Jesus said on the cross, it is finished. Yeah. And you need to let the devil hear that. So, you know, we have to preach the gospel to ourselves. I've been a Christian a long time and I still need to preach the gospel to myself because I'm living on enemy territory. There is an enemy around. And he will come along and begin his whispering campaigns. Sow doubts and things into our hearts and our minds. So guilt is not good at forming Christian identity. It will always hold you back. It will push you down. It makes us cower in fear of judgment. Whatever sentence we, listen, whatever sentence we or anyone else would put on us has been commuted by Christ. Yes. And there are people around you who would put a sentence on you. There's a devil who would put a sentence on you. But whatever sentence was on us, and yes, there was one, it has been commuted by Christ. Hallelujah. That should put a smile on your face. Eh? This this is why it's called the good news. Because it's not bad news. There's nothing that's kind of hidden away there anywhere. We are no longer Condemned. You know, I love Charles Wesley's hymns because Charles Wesley understood this. I think of his grand hymn, And Can It Be That I Should Gain an Interest 
in the Saviour's love. He's asking that question. Can it be that I, miserable sinner that I am, with all that I've done, with the little bad thoughts and the big bad things that I've done, can it be that I could possibly gain an interest in his love? And what's his answer? Yeah. And so when you get to that hymn, he's able to say with absolute confidence, no condemnation now I dread. Jesus and all in him is mine. Alive in him my living head and clothed with righteousness divine. Oh, yeah. (laughs) It's the gospel, isn't it? It's the gospel. So that's the first thing. We are no longer condemned. We have been set free. Number two, we have been set free from the law of sin and death. This is an important one. And that's why I go back to Romans chapter 7, because if you live in Romans chapter 7, the law of sin and death is very operative. And I used to preach that, that that's, that's part of normal Christian life. Can we think back years ago, I used to preach that, and I was a miserable Christian. And I, I could excuse my misery because, well, if Paul felt like this, well, surely I'm, not, I'm no better than Paul, am I? So if, if Paul had this pillow on which to lay his weary head, you know, the good that I would, I do not, and the bad, I don't want to do that, I can't, that that's, you know, that's me. And there have been times in my Christian life I, I've felt like that and I've known those principles at work in me and I, I've wrestled with myself as if I'm going schizophrenic and I kind of have these arguments. Perhaps, perhaps you've never done that sort of thing, but I have. And then I wonder whether I'm saved and all the rest of it. And I go back and I can remember in my early days I used to do it again just to make sure I got it right. Well, you don't need to do it again to make sure you got it right because it was right the first time, you know? But it was that sense, because I didn't fully understand the gospel, because I'd misinterpreted the word, and so there was this wrestling that went on with him, and I said, yeah, what a wretch I am! As Paul would write to the Galatians, where has all your joy gone? Why had they lost their joy? Because they'd lost the gospel. They'd lost sight of Jesus, their saviour. You see, if the enemy can get us looking in on ourselves, he's, 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 he's done half his task. Because we'll always find something to bring us down. You know, this, what I'm talking about this morning is one of the benefits of doing something like freedom in Christ. Because I, I, I am pushing out a lot here this morning in just over half an hour, which really needs a lot of thinking about. A lot of just drinking in and just praying through. And it took, in those days, we didn't have freedom in Christ. I wrestled with it. I wrestled with the scripture and so on. But we have been set free from the law of sin and death. You see, that law always has a downward pull. It's like if you throw a ball, it's going to come down. It's a bit like the rocket that went up the other day and then went to go into the next mode. It wasn't there, and so it came back to earth, you know? And that can be our Christian life without understanding that we have been set free from the law of sin and death. You see, if we live by the law of sin and death, there will always be that downward pull in our lives that keeps pulling us down and down and down. And with it, there will be disappointment. With it, there will be frustration. The power, the law, the principle of the law of sin and death, or its spell over our lives, has been broken. Hallelujah. It no longer holds power over us. 
even though the enemy might like to say so from time to time. The only power that it has in your life today is the power that you give it. And that's what we need to remember. It is the power that you give it. If you give it power, it will take it, and the enemy will make use of it. You need to, this is where you need to go back to the gospel. You need to go back and drink in the word of God. Encounter God in, in Romans chapter 8. One of the things that Paul says as he, he works through the gospel, he says, you know, we are dead to sin. That means I have died I'm in my relationship to sin. It doesn't mean I, I, I've stopped sinning or I can't sin anymore. It means I have died in my relationship to sin. I am dead to sin, but I am now alive in Christ. I've been raised to newness of life. There's a world out there that wants to know newness of life. Searching in all the wrong places. So we can say no to sin and we can walk in newness of life. Why? Which brings us to the third point. We're now people of the Spirit. So as you look at that chapter there and you you read it, so there is no condemnation. We have been set free from the law of sin and death through Jesus Christ and all that he has done. And now as you read through the rest of that portion, you find it's, it's the Spirit who comes into focus. And Christian people are people of the Spirit. Sometimes in theology, people stop at justification. In other words, I'm justified and I'm made right with God. That is good, but that is not the end of the Christian faith. It is that we are filled with the Spirit, that we're in the realm of the Spirit. And this is why I think uh, sinful nature in the New Living Translation is wrong. It's it all inside me like a, a duality where I end up with a sinful nature, if you like, on one side and a good nature on the other side. And we have a punch-up every day, you know? And, and it, it wears you out. It used to wear me out mentally. I mean, boy, I mean, it, it was really hard work. And then when I discovered I got this wrong, that it's not about what's... I am now a new person in Jesus. You see, it, outside of Christ, I am in the realm of the flesh, that is the realm of old Adam and the fall. We were originally made to be in the realm of the spirit, but when Adam sinned, there was another realm created, and it was the realm of the flesh. And it's the realm of sin and death. It's a realm where we, we feel that downward pull all the time. And so we're in that realm, and that's why you can't work out your own salvation. That's why you can't you know, get to God through that realm. It's impossible. That's why Jesus had to come. Jesus comes into that realm, and he lives for us, he's tempted in all points as we are, and he dies for us, and he pays the price on the cross, and he rises again, he defeats the realm of sin and death. Hallelujah. And because he's defeated the realm of sin and death, he can take us out of that realm and put us into the realm of his spirit, which is an entirely different realm altogether, because it's the realm of the kingdom of God, which is righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. And there's more on that a little bit later as we go on. But we do need to understand that. So I, if I was writing a Bible here, I was you know, printing it or whatever it is, I would capitalize the word flesh and, um, so that, to make that distinction. So the realm of the flesh and the realm of the spirit. Let me ask you this morning, do you know where you are? Do you know Jesus? Are you, perhaps you, you this morning are in that realm of the flesh where you know the power of temptation, you know the power of sin, and you know the power of constant defeat in your life. Jesus has entered that realm to save you. Jesus has paid the price in that realm to rescue you and restore you. 
to bring you forgiveness, to bring you deliverance, to bring you the power of a brand new life. It's tremendous stuff, isn't it? We've not just been unshackled as much as that would be. And sometimes we can be like that as Christians. And I think there's a a Christian novel, The Edge of Eternity by Randy Alcorn, where he has this picture in it of some people in a cage. And uh, when they get to the cage, they, they get to the cage on this journey, and there's people in it. And it's, why are they in it? Why are they in this cage? And, and, and they were originally in there for a reason, but why are they in this cage? Because actually, when you try the door, it's unlocked. But they're still living in the cage. And you know, that's like many Christians. It's unlocked, but you need to open the door and walk free to step out into God's glorious freedom, into this realm of the Spirit. So we've not just been unshackled, but we've been taken out of the realm of the flesh, the ways of this fallen world which always pulls downwards and it's been judged in Jesus and is passing away. And we've been put into the realm of the Spirit, which is the way of the kingdom of God, that which is come in Jesus and is coming. Then number four, if you read down a little bit further, we discover that we've been adopted. So all of this builds and it builds to our understanding of what it means to be the children of God. Verse 14 of that chapter 8, for those who are led by the Spirit of God, they are the children of God. The Spirit you receive does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the Spirit that you've received has brought about your adoption to sonship. So it's not just salvation that brought about your forgiveness, being made right with God, but it's, it's brought about your sonship. So Paul said earlier on, he says that God in Jesus justifies the ungodly. He justifies them. But then he says, he does more than that, he makes them his children. He makes them his children. Those rebels, those people who didn't want to know him, those people who disowned him, those people who at every turn in life rejected him. He makes them his children. We have been fully adopted. And we can't be unadopted. We can't have that broken in any way whatsoever. John Piper says this. He says, adoption is greater than the universe. And you kind of read that and you think, that's a strange thing to say, isn't it? But then you look at it and you think, wow. I mean, you stop, particularly with all our technology today. And you look at the universe. You look out there. I've got a telescope at home. And you look out there and you, you, know, you look at the moon and you go beyond the moon and see planets, you see stars. And you, know, you look at the stuff they show you on television and the vast cosmos that is out there. Staggering array, staggering glory. You take a walk in the park on an autumn day like today and you see the beauty, the tremendous beauty of of colour, shapes and so on, contrasts in different ways. And there's every reason to to say that, you know, the the universe that we have been placed in is staggeringly beautiful, staggeringly wonderful, beyond anything that we can possibly imagine or even describe. But John Piper says, adoption is is greater than all of that. Wow. 
So next time you, you walk out there, you walk, perhaps you walk, in a, walk down the park this afternoon and enjoy it. Then stop and think to yourself, hang on a minute, this is, this is staggering, isn't it? This is beautiful. What an amazing world. But hang on a minute, I've been adopted. And that is far, far greater and far, far more beautiful than even this. So let's explore it just a little bit, shall we? What is it? What is it? Paul uses the word five times in unpacking the gospel story in his letters. And the word was, was used particularly by the Romans. How many of you love Ben-Hur? How many, have you seen Ben-Hur? Oh, goodness, only not as many as I'd have thought. It's one of my favorite films. The original one, you can have the modern one, which is more condensed. I, I'd recommend the original one. But, you know, the story, when you look at that story, for those of you who don't know, of, of Ben-Hur, who was raised as a son in, 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 in Judah, and then he's taken captive and he ends up as a slave, and he, he just, you know, and everything in, in him is hating what he's going through. And uh, eventually, to cut a long story short, uh, a, a Roman officer takes him in and he, he adopts him as his son. And it's a staggering moment in the film when this man, this man who's been a slave, who's been treated so badly, is suddenly made a son. And there was a legal process that they had to go through. But at the end of the legal process, that man had as much right as an earthly-born son. Oh, I love that moment. And there's just a glimpse in there of the revelation that we have of God in Christ and what he's done for us. It's a beautiful, beautiful moment. And you get the sense of Ben-Hur being so staggered by it. Your son? I'm your son? But I'm a Jew and you're a Roman? You don't like us? And yet you love me? And you are making me your son and giving me every entitlement of sonship that belongs to a son in your family. Wow. That's staggering, isn't it? It was a legal transaction, a process that had to be gone through until that point had been reached which said, this is final and it cannot be gone back on. (laughs) Wonderful. Wonderful, isn't it? So, being adopted... Listen, was the cancelling of all the old relationships. Whatever those relationships may have been, it meant the cancelling of those old relationships and the establishment of a new relationship. And that's what God has done for us in Jesus. He has cancelled the old relationship. In Scripture it says that when we sin, sin, we're of our father the devil. God in Jesus has cancelled the old relationship. He's broken it. It's finished. And we're forever his. Isn't that wonderful? A forever child of God. A rebel made a son. I want you to notice too, it says here, that you, the spirit you received does not make you slaves, and the spirit you received brought about your adoption. So this is something that we receive. We live in an age where I, I've got to do something. What's my, what's my little bit to this? Is there, is there a piece somewhere in this contract that I've got to do in order to fulfill it, to, to, to get me in and to keep me in? And the answer is no. 
Because Paul very clearly says, you have received the spirit of adoption. Wow. Maybe you've never thought of that before. Just take a moment just to, just to pause and think, wow. I've received the spirit of adoption. I'm in. I am in. And I'm in for good. And God is my father. Wow. God is my father. For many years in my early Christian life, my concept of God was of an almighty God. Majestic and holy and beautiful and glorious in all his ways like that. It was years before I got a concept and understanding of God as Father, and I, I felt free to pray like that. I remember hearing some people pray, just coming to prayer and saying, Father, I sit there and think, how can you do that? How can you do that? You can do it through the spirit of adoption. That, that's the beauty, isn't it? How do you talk to God? Do you talk to him in that way at all? A little bit more on that in a minute. But in this performance age in which we live, we do, do remain, need to be reminded that we have received the spirit of adoption. Received by grace through faith. You didn't add anything to it at all. Wow. It says that we repent, believe, be baptized, and are filled with the Holy Spirit. You believe and you receive. And then, out of that, of course, it becomes, we understand that it was a matter of God's choice. It was a matter of God's choice. When we think of normal families, there is very often no choice. You know, the the baby comes along and you have no idea what you're getting. Well, you might know today whether it's a boy or a girl, if you want to go that far, you know. Some do, some don't. But you have no idea what personality they're going to have, no idea how they're going to grow up, what their life is going to be like. And yet, God knew you from the beginning, and he knew exactly what he was taking on. He knew every little detail. He knew the little sins and the big sins, the hidden sins and the known sins. He knew what a rebel you were. And he loved you. He loved you. He just loved you. He knew you and he chose to adopt you as you he didn't say, well, if you, if you come up a few grades, I might count you in. He chose to adopt you as you are. And Father, therefore, knows what he's taken on. In a normal birth, you just don't know. So we're no longer, too, slaves to fear. That comes from a, a servant-master concept It comes from that idea that somehow we're still being judged in some way, being ruled over. We have all the privileges now of a natural-born son. Full rights of sonship. Wow. 
And that's why the older translations are, are perhaps a little bit better here. We, we tend to want to be uh, politically correct, if you like, and say sons and daughters or children of God, as some translations have gone. But of course, in the old, old, in the old days in the New Testament, um, the female didn't inherit. It was always the male who inherited. And so when it says son, it is talking about the inheritor. And yes, we all, as sons and daughters, are inheritors. But it is when we understand that concept, we see the power and the importance of those words. So we receive, we're no longer slaves to fear. That comes from the servant-master concept. It's the symptom of an orphan spirit, not knowing that God is our father. We have received the full rights of a son or a daughter. All the privileges, uh, going back to that illustration of the natural-born son. All the, all the privileges, access to the father, all the privileges of what the father owned, etc., uh, etc., et and then we come to these words here. It says, The spirit you receive does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the spirit you receive brought about your adoption to sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. Wow. It's interesting that in the Old Testament, the reference to God as Father is almost non-existent. But when you step over into the New Testament, Jesus uses the word so many times. And it was a shock to to the Jew of the day as well as the Gentile that Jesus should go to God and say, Father. They had not known anybody pray like this. They had not known anybody have such an intimate, personal relationship with the creator God and he says father and then when they want to know how to pray and they ask him he says when you pray say our father that was shocking and we we don't we don't understand it nowadays but that was shocking that was unheard of And there's one occasion when Jesus is approaching the cross and he's in the garden and he's about to take the weight of our sin and pay the price for it. And that's that one occasion when he says, Abba, Father. Find it in Mark's Gospel. Abba, Father. Again, the sheer shock of those words. Deeper sense of intimacy there. So it involves intimacy. It's not creator-object. It's not master-servant. It's not a boss or employee. We're brought, listen to this, we're brought into the same relationship that Jesus has with his Father. You get that? We are brought into the same relationship that Jesus has with his his father. It's the privileged status of the adult son or daughter and heir. Wow, that is staggering. And so in that, we have been brought into the same conversation that Jesus has with the father. That's a a mind-blowing thought, that we have been brought into that same conversation that exists within the heart 
of the Trinity. Wow, time's gone. Two points just to to close. Um, The glorious liberty of the children of God is what Acts talks about, uh, sorry, Romans talks about. Our disintegrated personalities are now unified. We find that we are healed and enabled to be the people that God intends us to be. And then the Father will never abandon us. As you look at the end of of uh, Romans chapter 8, you discover that nothing, absolutely nothing, absolutely nothing can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Let's stand, shall we? Listen, redemption has always been more than just saving us and getting us into heaven. It's been about God redeeming us and bringing us into his family so that he might love us and delight in us in exactly the same way that he loves and delights in his son and that we might also love and delight in him in the love, warmth and gladness of his Trinitarian being, which is unquestionably good news. So, Father, as we come to a close this morning, we thank you for your grace displayed in Jesus Christ. We thank you for this staggeringly good news. And, Lord, we've just scratched the surface of it. But, Lord, what an amazing message it is. And I just pray that for each one of us, Lord, we might go away and dig into it this week. That we might, yeah, yeah, mine this well of your salvation. So so deeply, so thoroughly. Lord, we get the enemy off our backs. And Lord, we would know as we were singing earlier what it is to be more than conquerors through him who loved us. Lord, may we just rejoice in that spirit of adoption whereby we, me, us, we we cry, Abba, Father. May we just be able to get alone and just say that in some place, walk a path or some quiet place, just to go along and say, Abba, Father, Abba, Father. Oh, wonderful, wonderful, wonderful. To think you've made us co-heirs, staggering, Lord. So, Lord, as we come to the close, may your grace rest upon each of our lives. May we know the goodness of God. May we know that hope that Pete referred to earlier on as we go out into this week. That hope because, Lord, not of us, but because of that relationship you've brought us into. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Amen.